Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 54 of my podcast, I Stand Strong. I, as always, am Teddy, coming at you from my bear cave in the concrete jungle of the currently extremely cold Midwest. Um, Okay, uh, let's get into this. Um, On episode 50, I believe it was, there was a question asked about, you know, favorite, you know, adaptations of books to screen, I'll say. Cause I'm, um, so I, that's what I'm going to be talking about. Um, however, I'm not going to only go to movies because I think there are also some good TV shows that could fit into that category. So, uh, so yeah, so let's start with like, what, what makes a good adaptation? Um, is it when the filmmaker just follows word for word the book, or is it knowing when to omit things that just aren't going to work in a, a cinematic point of view from a cinematic point of view compared to how well they worked in the book? Um, you know, for example, like I lo- I am one of the few people who liked the book, The Dreamcatcher. And by Stephen King, and I can say I I thought the movie was fun, but it is not a great adaptation. But then again, reading the book, even I knew there were aspects of that that were not going to translate well. Because I mean, Dreamcatcher, a lot of it takes place in the mind, and it's really hard to put that on screen. Um, but anyways, that that's a, a, a example of a kind of a bad adaptation. Even though the actors involved in Dreamcatcher, you know, like that had a huge cast to it. So by all rights, it should have worked a lot better than it did. But I think it was just, like I said, there was there's too much stuff to the book Dreamcatcher that wouldn't really translate well to a, a movie. But I think they did okay with it. But anyways. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll start with, uh, to me, the, pr- the prime example of, a, of probably one of the best adaptations of book to screen and it's because the the director found that balance of what would work well in a in a cinematic point of view and what would just not work and that's uh peter jackson's lord of the rings um i'm admittedly a huge lord of the rings fan so i'm kind of part probably a little bit biased on this but at the same time i think he took a source material that was very dense And in the book, at least the first book, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, is extremely slow. And he found the best way to adapt it to make it into a compelling movie. I mean, um, movie series, really. But, uh, oh, geez, that's why. Um, But, yeah, so it's it's one of those things. It's like, you know, how do you, you know, like, the, the things he omitted made it, like, that he left out made sense in the grand scheme of things. Like, I mean, I know a lot of uh, diehard Tolkien fans were were upset that uh, Tom Bombadil never appeared in the um, in the movies. But I'm like, I'm kind of okay with that because, I mean, Tom Bombadil is a fun character to read, but that point in the book also really slows down the story. As well as, you know, like, how well would a guy that speaks in, like, songs really translate well to a movie without just kind of coming off hokey? 
on top of the fact that like he's completely immune to the power of the ring. Like he holds the ring in his hand and is like, oh, that's pretty, and hands it back like it's nothing. And that takes power away from the ring, you know, and, and the story they're trying to tell about the ring. I mean, the Lord of the Rings, I mean, it it's it's revered for a reason now. I mean, it does definitely take the core idea of the story and then takes things from the appendices that Tolkien had put in and rounds out the story to make it make it whole. I mean, on, on another standpoint, though, the book is not written very traditionally, so it makes it really, you know, narratively, I think it was, it was kind of a task and like Peter Jackson and uh, his wife, Fran, and I think Philippa was the other name, the, the other lady that helped. They really found a way to distill down what was the crucial moments and what you don't have to have to get the story across. And that is a big deal when it comes to adaptations to me. So yeah, I, I think Lord of the Rings probably has to be my number one. Um, but then again, like I said, I, I might be biased because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll move into uh, my next one, which I think I, I want to say whichever episode it was, I'm pretty sure it was 50. I, I mentioned Jurassic Park being probably one of the the best adaptations, and it's another case of the filmmakers seeing this you know, this, this book and realizing what you can use and what you can't to make it into a better movie. Um, I mean, I love Jurassic Park, both the movie and the book, but I freely admit there's a chunk in that book that if, if Spielberg would have tried to put into the movie, it would have lost so many people because Michael Crichton is very deep into the science of things. So, like, there's a whole point where, you know, they're on the computer system and that it's how they figure out that the dinosaurs are breeding is through just a bunch of numbers on a screen. And that would have been so much more, like, boring and, like, kind of, like, hard to, uh, um, you know, really hard to uh, balance just putting it out there that way. So the way they did it with, you know, like them finding the eggs and Grant making the comment about how, you know, like some frogs have been known to change sex in certain situations and they use frog DNA to, you know, to kind of fill the gaps. You know, that's, that was a genius way of doing it. You know, just have it be a little bit of like a, a, a single scene that's could be kind of seen as a throwaway, but very important. Um, on top of the fact, like, changing certain characters here and there in ways that I think helped. Like, I think um, keeping Hammond, like, almost a, a genuine person in the fact that, you know, like, he created this park. And even by the end of the movie, even he realizes he made a mistake. Even though he does know the wonder, the wonder that he, he had put together with this thing. Where in the book, he, you know, I mean... In the book, he, you know, like, spoiler, he dies because he leaves his, his grandchildren to die. 
ends up getting killed by a bunch of compies, which, you know, they don't even have in the, you know, the original movie. They didn't bring them in until the second one. Um, and I really felt like that change was, was important. Like, I liked the fact that they gave him this, I wouldn't say redemption arc, because he really, I really don't feel like he did anything wrong other than, you know, he was too curious and, you know, as, as Malcolm said, he was so busy thinking, you know, we can do this. He didn't think if he should do it. And he created dinosaurs. You know, he found the way to bring dinosaurs into the modern day, but that's not necessarily a good thing. But even by the end, even he sees that, even though he still knows the, there's a certain amount of wonder to, you know, being able to see these creatures that man and, you know, their time and the time of man have been so separated that all we can really, you know, we can just make theories on what they actually looked like. Um, so yeah, like I, I really, I really feel Jurassic Park did a great job at taking what was necessary and getting rid of certain things and, you know, shifting, uh, you know, like places around with characters. Cause I want to say in the book, the, the Timmy was the one that did like pretty much everything. Like he was the computer hacker. He was the, you know, and then, so like they did some, some retooling and they made it so that, uh, you know, the, the granddaughter was the one that was really smart with computers. And even though that, that scene doesn't age well because of, you know, the computer system she's working in. I know nothing about a Unix system, but I know a lot of people make fun of the, you know, the comment about it's a Unix system. I have no idea what that means. Um, but you know, yeah, it, it does, it does a really good job at distilling once again. Um, okay. Now this, this one I'm going with because like I just recently rewatched all three of these movies I don't know really what triggered me to want to rewatch them, but I remember liking them and I own them. So I like, I'll go ahead. And so like, you know, the night before I'm recording this, I rewatched all three of them and that's the Maze Runner trilogy. Um, You know, it, it's another one of those ones where, uh, man, I mean, he like Wes Ball, the director, um, he really saw, it's almost like he could see what was important to the story and what wasn't. And he actually didn't change a whole lot throughout that book series. Like I think the only thing that I can really think of off the top of my head that he massively changed was a little bit to do with uh, the character of Newt. Cause in the books, I want to say it comes out in the second one that he's not immune to the, the flare virus. Um, and he gets uh, infected, and then it carries over into the third book. And at some point in time, he makes Thomas promise, like if he if he starts turning, Thomas will you know put him out of his misery so that he doesn't ever become a full on you know essentially a zombie. Um, but in the movies, like they they save him getting infected till the third one. Um, and they keep up the, they keep making this hope that, you know, they're going to get the, the, you know, uh, the serum for him that will at least slow the virus or whatnot until it's finally too late. And in the book, from what I remember, I mean, it's been a little bit since I've read the books, but from what I remember in the books, like he's, 
he's pretty well infected for a good chunk, but he's he's able to control it, and he doesn't really lose his cool until he realizes Thomas might not, you know, is going to have a hard time fulfilling the promise. Um. So yeah, it's it's one of those ones where it's like you know it, it's it's another one like Lord of the Rings where the trilogy is just really well balanced. It does a good job at telling the stories. And at the same time, bringing the like this kind of uh, YA horror to it. Because, I mean, I didn't remember the first two being so horrific. Um, I mean, the first one, you have the, the Grievers, um, which are out inside, you know, out in the maze. Because, like, I guess, like, if, if you haven't seen the, seen the movies or read the books, you know, it, it's roughly uh, Thomas is the main character and he wakes up in this like essentially elevator in a cage and when it gets to the top it's opened up by a bunch of other kid like teenage boys and he doesn't know who he is he doesn't know his name all he knows is he's he's just woken up and he's being confronted by these people he tries to make a run for it but trips and then he comes to find out that like you know they're in this glade that's surrounded by these giant walls. And at first, no one really tells him what's on outside the walls, but you come to find out it's a maze. And there's something about this maze that, like, you know, it, it changes every night. And there's people that they call the runners who run the maze and they're trying to chart it to try to figure out if there's a way through the maze to get out. Um, but the second Thomas arrives in the glade, you know, they start to realize things aren't staying the same necessarily. Like things start to slightly change. Like the uh, the grievers start, you know, who once only came out at night, they kind, of, you know, they started coming out at day, you know, in the, during the day, and um, yeah. So it's just it it builds a core mystery of like, okay, what is what is this maze? Like, is there a way out of the maze? And long story short, yeah, he he starts to, uh, you know, he goes into the maze un, you know, unallowed, like kind of like without permission to save one of the other runners and the head of the glade, and gets stuck out there at night with the other two of them, and ends up killing one of the grievers, which thus, you know, starts this chain reaction of people realizing things aren't aren't going to be the same anymore. <clears throat> and at the same time, like suddenly the cage comes up. It's only supposed to come up, you know, one. I think they call it the box. Actually, it comes up like once a month, and it usually has a new a new member of the glade, and it has a bunch of resources. Well, it comes up like a couple days after Thomas comes up, and there's a girl on it, and all she says, you know, she she wakes up long enough to say Thomas's name, and then passes out, and as they're uh, checking out, they find something in her hand that says she's the last one ever, and the box never goes back down. So, of course, panic starts happening. It's it's very Lord of the Flies at points, um, but they quickly realize they need to figure out the way out of the maze because it's the only you know it's their only option now. Because the other thing is the doors stop, doors to the walls stop, the maze stop closing at night. So the Grievers come in and, you know, it's it's this great, it's a, it's very intense. And like the Grievers are these 
genetically created creatures of some kind that if they sting you, it gives you like this, like it makes you incredibly rage induced and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so of course, because there's three of them, you, you know, he gets out of the, you know, he gets them out of the maze and they find out that this is a, a research project by a company called the World Catastrophe Kill Zone Department, or Wicked, um, and these these boys are like the only hope to cure what's really going on. Which is at some point in time, it doesn't really give you a exact like year. Something happened, and the 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 sun like scorched the earth. So most of the earth is like dead because it just like the solar rays just destroyed it. But that was only the the like the opening salvo of this apocalypse, so to speak. Because then also came the flare virus, which turns people similar to like twenty eight days later with like you know it's a, a rage virus almost. But there's no cure. But that's the whole point. Is like this this maze is the first trial to try to find a cure for the flare virus. Um. And I'm not just going to break down each one, but so yeah, so basically it's just, it's the story of Thomas and like the survivors from this glade that thus get, th- you know, after the first one, they're thrust in this bigger world and trying to figure out what's really going on. You know, it's, it's made pretty clear pretty quickly that Wicked is not a good, you know, they're not good people. Um... And yeah, so it kind of becomes the the battle of Thomas and his and his group of people trying to keep away from Wicked and you know try to figure out what's going on. Um, but like I said, the first one you have like very much you have the Grievers as the horror. So you have like this these like exterior monster forces that are just creepy. As sh- Excuse me, shit. But then you bring in the the second one, and it's pretty much a zombie movie for a good chunk of it because it's the first time you see the the people infected by the flare, and you see them at various stages. And admittedly, the thir- the final stage of infection on this on this virus is just disturbing. Um, but yeah, so it, I think this one did a really good job adapting the source material. To film, but Wes Ball, the director, also worked very closely with the director of the or the the author of the books to try to put together. You know what what do we need to have in here, and what can we afford to like slightly tweak to make it play better for screen. And I give a lot of credit to like after watching the special features last night as I was watching the movies to James Dashner, the author, for really, like, you know, like, you know, like, kind of calming down some of the book fans when they changed small things. Like, listen, no, I was okay. Like, I helped make these changes because they were necessary to go from written word to screen adaptation. And that's, that's great that he was willing to do it because there's a lot of there's a lot of authors that do not like that will, will have nothing to do with the adaptations to their books, and I find that a, a you know kind of like unfortunate sometimes because there's a lot of them that I really think would have helped if they would have had the the author or somebody who knows 
the source material, if the authors passed away, like with Tolkien, you know, like if they would have had, um, you know, like somebody who who's really close to the material helping do it. But then again, Peter Jackson was enough of a fan of Lord of the Rings. He didn't need anybody else's help. But anyways. Um, okay, for the next one, I'm going to go with a specific movie from from a series because I really feel like the first one was the only one that adapted and well I guess like the first two were really really good adaptations and I think from the third one on it kind of fell apart only because they they didn't adapt the third book very well and it really kind of hurt the rest of the movies going forward and that would be Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and I guess like I said I'll throw Chamber of Secrets on there too because I think both the first two of the Harry Potter movies were really, really good adaptations of the source material. When you get a little bit little bit off on the third one, when they took out like a main storyline that was key to that third book. But anyways, we're not going to focus on the bad one. We're going to focus on the first two. I, I really feel the first two, you know, yeah, once again, they took a majority of the, the source material from the book and translated it and just took out these like little small things that made it, flow a lot better for a screen adaptation um i mean like you know if if there was any of the books that should have been you know like i mean going to the later series later into the series i mean if there were any books that could have been in that series that should have been two it should have been part four because the goblet of fire is such a dense read and i think it could have been appreciated more if they would have decompressed it and made played it as two movies to allow it to breathe rather than just you know like going through the trials so freaking quickly but that said i still think four is an okay adaptation it's just it just plays a little like it just doesn't have a whole lot of time to breathe throughout the series throughout the movie because they just wanted to keep it going they only wanted to make one movie where I really feel you could have done the seventh one as one movie, you should have done the fourth one as two. But anyways. So yeah, Harry Potter, the first two, really good adaptations. Um, from what I can remember off the top of my head, the only thing that they really took out of that first the first movie that was in the book was like one of the trials they go through on the way to finding the Sorcerer's Stone. But it really wasn't that important of a piece that I felt that it could, you know, it needed to be, it needed to be there. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I have a feeling this episode is going to be a little bit shorter because I'm probably going to burn through, probably going to burn through a lot of these fairly quickly. Um, okay, yeah, now I'm going to go with a comic book adaptation, which, while not a perfect adaptation, I think it deserves to be mentioned here because it is the best adaptation of the comic we will ever get. And that is Watchmen. Um, Watchmen is revolutionary as far as comics go. Um, Both really kind of introducing the fact that maybe these superheroes aren't always the most... uh, 
oh, what's the word for it? You know, they're they're not always probably the best the best people to be um, idolized, so to speak, because you really kind of see the morally gray area in these superheroes. But at the same time, in the in the comic book format, like I mean, it it took the comic book format and played with it in ways that you know had never been done before. So then you turn around, and they make the movie, and I think that they did the like I think Zack Snyder did one of the best things he could have done with ad- adapting it. Um, I think he, you know, the 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 biggest change he made, of course, is changing the way uh Ozymandias uh tries to convince the world that you know that there was an attack because in the books he like creates this squid with telepathic abilities but then like just basically like flings it at earth or what I, I can't remember exactly how it plays out but it you it lands and it's dead on earth but it looks like you know Oh, there's this threat where in the movie they adapted it to uh, everything was supposed to be the fault of Dr. Manhattan, which actually kind of plays well, especially with, you know, like even in the book, there's very much a theme with Dr. Manhattan that the, you know, when he, when his powers really kind of, um, manifest the further he you know the the further he gets into his powers the more like disconnected he gets from humanity and so it really worked well to me to have him be kind of this you know like you know he and he's radiation based so it's like of course yeah he's like the ultimate weapon that can't be in check because he's like really he's the only hero that has true superpowers in the Watchmen universe. Like everybody else is just more of like kind of like a Batman S character or a Punisher S character where they're just people who have really good athleticism and fighting skills. Um, but then deeper into it, you also get, you know, like I think they really do a good job at, you know, tackling, you know, the subject of the rape of Silk Spectre by the uh, the comedian and stuff like that that really does it you know it does it with a certain level of uh, decency and I mean even in the book it did but I mean let's face it like a, a rape scene can be really kind of like poorly used sometimes in movies and in books to try to get like just a, a shock value where it doesn't feel like in this one it was played as a shock value it was more of a a setup to a point at the end that was kind of the reveal where you find out that Silk Spectre 2 was, you know, was basically, you know, conceived through this rape. So there's this ugly situation that was also, you know, that led to this, this beautiful creation of life. And that's, that's an interesting, like, a fascinating, you know, kind of like study, even though it's like, you know, at the same time, there's also that part of you that's like, but man, it's like, how did she, how did the original Silk Spectre decide to keep this kid when it was just going to be a reminder of this, this ugly situation? 
I don't know. It's it's a really interesting balance that Snyder finds in the, in in the movie, and I think I also think he did a really good job casting everybody. I mean, say what you will about the the overly stylized sex scene set to uh, oh god Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah with complete with uh, um, hitting the button and making the. Uh, the the out the night owls like playing Archie shoot flame right is uh they're climaxing and you know like it 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 was a bit ham fisted but I still had fun with it and I I think like I said I think it's the best adaptation you will ever get of that graphic novel to a screen adaptation. <clears throat> Okay, where to? Okay, um, okay. This one is is a TV show. Um, that's I'm gonna go with Guillermo del Toro. Uh, God, in the mid 2000s, probably like probably 2010s. I I didn't look it up. Uh, wrote a book series with another author that's slipping my mind at the moment in time called The Strain, and I got the first one as a gift from my mother, my former mother-in-law, like found it at a um, bookstore, like an airport or whatever, and gave it to me. And I devoured that book. And by the time I'd finished it, there was a sequel out, uh, The the Fall. So it went The Strain, The Fall, The Night Eternal. Um, and it's a really cool, the first one especially is a really cool take on vampirism because it's told from... The standpoint of a um, a special unit of scientists that are basically on call if like rare viruses or whatever uh, break out, and it centers around a plane lands at you know I don't remember which New York airport it is, but it, it lands it it lands at an airport and the plane the second it lands. It just stops and just sits there on the runway. So the people, you know, the the ground crew go out there and check it. All the all the windows are, you know, the whatever they call them, the sliders are down, so they can't see into the plane, and they're getting no response from the plane at all. So they call in this team to come and investigate, and they're the first people to go onto the plane and. When they get there, they find, like, everybody dead except for, like, I think there's, like, five or six people that suddenly, re you know, like, reanimate while they're on the plane. So they take those people and put them in, like, a quarantine situation so they can find out what's going on. And then at the same time, they also, uh, you know, send all the other bodies off to random morgues because there's so many people on this plane that... Uh, they can't all send them to this all to the same morgue, and it ends up being basically yeah, vampire. There was a vampire on board, and but it, it studies vampirism through, like basically like vi what's the word for it, like as if it were a disease, not really as a a supernatural aspect, um. But I mean, as the book go, as the book series goes, it it does turn into more of just a straight up vampire kind of thing. With you know, 
deep getting deeply into the politics of this vampire world and whatnot. Um, you know, with you know the the vampire that was on this plane is known as the master, and he's like one of you know one of the elders, kind of. But he's kind of like a rogue version of the elders, and there's all these other elders that are in America that are threatened by him. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, but it, it FX turned this into a TV series. It was three books. I think it got made into four four TV uh, four seasons of a show. And once again, it was really well cast. They they changed a couple things. Like um, I know in the second book, um. Well, in the first book, they introduce you to uh, this old man named Abraham Satrakian. And he had always heard the stories of, uh, you know, this this former count or son of a count or whatever in, you know, some Eastern European country um, that... He went missing for a while, like because he was he was very frail, so he's walked with like a cane, like this. But he was also like incredibly tall, like he, you know, he he had a huge body, but he wasn't able to really, you know, uh, hold it up on his own, so to speak. Um, and so he walked with a cane. Well, he went off on a hunting trip to prove to his father that he was capable of doing it, and he doesn't come back. Until like much later, but when he comes back, people start noticing you only see him at night, and you'll only know he's there because suddenly you'll hear the you know the click of this cane, which used to be this sign of happiness because he would come by and he'd always have candy for kids and whatnot. But suddenly it became this thing to fear, <clears throat> and it was also like suddenly his his health issues were gone. Like he didn't need the cane; he still used it, but he didn't need it. And so Satrakian is, you know, flash forward to the, the present and he's this older man that runs a pawn shop in New York. And when he hears about the airplane, he knows exactly what he's seen. So he gets a hold of this, the head of the this viral team and tries to tell them what's really going on before it it's too late. Um, shocker, of course, you know, considering there's more than one book. It's already too late. But, but yeah, the, 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 in the second book, he dies stopping like, uh, not like the main vampire, but like one of the, the, like second in command, like one of the higher ups in hit in the hierarchy. And they change that in the series because he survives. Instead, they kill off. Um, the female love interest to the main character, which I was kind of okay with because I really don't feel like they were doing a very good job at keeping her a, a, a good, solid character in the TV show. show. Um, but yeah, it's it's such a good... Like, the books were really good, and I really think that doing a TV series in this one was was smart because they could have done... You know, try to do a trilogy of movies, but I don't know how well it would have um, adapted to that one. Because, like, you, I think you would have had to take too much out 
of the backstories. Because, like, I mean, especially when you really start getting into everything uh, Satrakian went through to get to where he is now. I mean, because, yeah, he was a small kid in this small village eating beet soup with his grandma, hearing the stories of this, you know, this essentially this vampire. Um, to actually having encounters with the master while he was interred in a uh, concentration camp. Um, and he was a like an amazing woodworker. And while he was in this concentration camp, he was protected because he was an amazing woodworker. And all like the the higher ups within the the Nazi party wanted you know wanted woodworking from him. And at one point in time, he builds like this very large chest and doesn't really know what it's for. But until he starts noticing that, like every fourth or fifth night somebody just goes missing from the the bunkhouse he's he's housed in and one night he just happens to see this shadowy figure lean over like one of the more sickly people in a bunk and he puts together that it's a vampire and that it's this vampire he'd heard the stories about and he tries to stop the the master one night, but it goes wrong and he has his hands broken. So he can no longer be a woodworker. And I can't remember exactly how, but somehow he gets, he, you know, he, he breaks free and gets loose. And of course now he's in New York city running a pawn shop and he becomes this crucial point to like teaching these, I want to say they call it the canary team, uh, you know, teaching them the best ways to dispose of the vampires and, uh, eventually they bring in a, like probably the best character in the book, uh, Vasily Fett, who is a, uh, he's pest control. Like he specializes in going through the, um, like the tunnels, especially around, like they make a big deal of the fact, like, uh, you know, he goes through like the tunnels been below, uh, ground zero for, uh, you know, the world trade center. And, like, taking care of rats. Well, all of a sudden you bring him in and he kind of analyzes the the vampire threat through the standpoint of, like, pest control. And so it gives you another really kind of cool aspect of it. In the TV series, he is played by um, Kevin Dur- Durand or Durant. I can't remember. How, I think it's Durant. Durand. Um, anyways, you know, he's, he's one of those actors, like he's been in a lot of things, but he never, uh, he's one of those guys, like you see him, you're like, oh yeah, it's that guy from that other thing. But a lot of people don't know him by name or anything, but God, he's a great actor. Um, and yeah, he, he plays the part to perfection as well as, uh, I really feel Corey Stoll, uh, plays, um, Ephraim Goodweather, the main character, really, really well. Uh, and the 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 the, uh, the actor that plays uh, Satrakian, of course, was Filch in Harry Potter, the Harry Potter films, as well as uh, oh god, dang it! Now I now I've got to remember the name of the character he played. He he was in. Game of Thrones, Walder Frey. He played Walder Frey in Game of Thrones, who is probably, if not the most 
one of the top three most despicable people in that book series slash TV show. Um, you know, and he plays Satrakian really well. And it, it is really kind of interesting to see him play a good guy. Because, like, even as Filch, you know, like, he's he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he's not really a good guy either. And, of course, Walter Frey, he's just a complete, you know, complete asshat. So, but no, it, it like, this... The TV series does a really good job at adapting um, the books. At least as much as I watch. I Given I watched season three and then I fell off because I didn't have cable. So I need to like, I have all four seasons. I need to sit down and watch season three, th- three and four to see how they wrap it up. If they change anything drastically at the end of the story. Because... I almost could see them changing some of the stuff because it doesn't really have the happiest of endings. I mean, they yes, they do. In the end of the books, they do eliminate the vampire threat. But there's a lot of costs for it. Um, and I'd be interested... I'm, I'm really, I really need to sit down and watch season three and four so I can see if they tie that up. But I can at least speak for the first two seasons. They do a really good job at adapting book to fit to screen um so yeah um i guess i mean i i guess that does open you know like bringing up the fact that uh is it david bradley i think is the name of the actor that played walter frey i might i might as well throw out there i feel like the at least the first four or five seasons of the game of thrones tv series is really well adapted um the fifth one gets a little slow to me, but probably just because the even in the fifth book, it's a bit slow. Because I mean, it's uh, Daenerys is is like holed up in the major city, so it's like she's not really going anywhere. And the fact that book four and five take place at the same t- point in time, but just follow different characters, <clears throat> you don't have as much going on in the fifth book. And the fifth season kind of felt the same, but then it's. Fairly safe to say that six, well, I guess season six was pretty decent. But season seven and I believe, yeah, there's eight seasons. So uh, yeah, season seven and eight, it kind of goes a little off the rails only because they're at that point in time, they were beyond what George R. R. Martin has written. As well as the fact, like, for some reason, they decided to do shortened seasons. So to do all the stories they want to tell, but not add extra episodes. They like basically make it appear like people can just like teleport around this world instead of like really showing them traveling, you know, like, cause there's points where it seems like, uh, Oh God, what is the, I cannot remember the name of the, the evil Greyjoy, but you know, the, they have him like he's on one side of the the world and suddenly he you know like 5 minutes later he's on the other side of the world so it's like what do these ships have teleportation abilities we're not t- being told about or something but no it's just they condensed everything cuz they wanted to do shorter seasons and I don't understand that and yeah you I could argue that the you know you could argue that this the the show didn't wrap up the best like it 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 definitely uh, just kind of was like, okay, we're out of things to do. We need to wrap this up. And so they just threw shit out there. So yeah, seven and eight, definitely season seven and season eight, definitely uh, 
weren't the best, but I still think, you know, on the whole, it was a great, it was a good show. Um, but seasons one through, I'll give it one through six, or I think do a really good job at adapting the work with small changes, like taking lines away from certain characters that were pointless to put in the book uh, or in the movie or show and giving them to, to other characters to make sure that those, those quotes get out there because they're important quotes, but at the same time, not having to bring in a character that's pretty much pointless otherwise. Um, yeah, I think, I think I might've stalled out on this one here listeners. Um, so I'll tell you what, why don't you, uh, why don't you write, tell me what you think are really good adaptations of a book to screen. Um, you know, and you, you can, you can send me those at standstrongcast at gmail.com. Um, so yeah. With that, I guess I will say my thank you for listening and thank you to everybody who supports me. Um, so yeah, I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye bye.